Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am Jory Crowder, co-host of New Books in Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Um, today I'm speaking with Farzana Doctor about her poetry collection, You Still Look the Same. It's coming out just next month in May. Hi, Farzana. Hi, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, I really, really appreciate you being here. I'm so excited to talk about it these poems and just just your work in general. And so Farzana Doctor is a Toronto-based author, activist, and a psychotherapist. She has written four critically acclaimed novels, her latest, Seven, which Ms. Magazine described as fully feminist and ambitiously bold, was chosen for multiple 2020 best book lists and shortlisted for the Trillium and Evergreen Awards. Her poetry collection, You Still Look the Same, which we'll be talking about today, is coming out, like I said, just in May, 2022. And she's also the Masi behind Dear Masi, a new sex and relationships column for FGM um, slash C survivors. And so I would love it, Farzana, if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yes, thank you so much. Um, so in the morning, I'm a writer. And then in the afternoon, I'm a psychotherapist. Um, I went to school to become um, a social worker. And so I'm a registered social worker, but all through uh, my childhood and teen years and adult life, I've been writing. And um, I, I really spent most of my writing career on novels. Um, and so this is the first time I've put all of my poems together into a collection or some of my poems together into a collection which is kind of exciting for me and also a little nerve wracking. Um, and then the activist part of me, you know, happens in the times in between. That yeah. is very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, before we dive into your poetry, tell me a little bit more about the process of putting them together into a collection. You say it's a little bit nerve wracking. Um, what was that like? And why did you decide I to do it? Yeah, I think the nerve wracking part of it is that it feels really vulnerable. You know, probably every poem, uh, at least the kernel of it, 
came from something personal and then, you know, ends up being rewritten and rewritten many, many times until it becomes something else. Um, but there are these very personal kernels. And of course, with novel writing, there are also personal, you know, inspirations and kernels there too. But this felt just a little bit more bare. And in terms of putting it together into a collection, I had, you know, over a hundred poems and I had to think about what was this collection about? What was it for? What was I trying to say? What was I trying to do? And so I had to weed out lots of the poems that didn't fit. And then of course I had to revise the poems that were there, reorder them. It was a very interesting process. You know, it's very different to write poems and then also to put it together into a collection as a whole other experience. It's a whole other craft, I think, creating the collection. Yeah, so it sounds like um, it's very deliberate in the like the order you put them in, how you group them. How, did, how does that work? Yes, it is deliberate. So as I was going through, I worked um, with two, two different editors and I was thinking a lot about like, what are these themes? And what I really realized as I was grouping them together that, that there ended up being these four themes. So the first is looking at loss. Uh, the second one is um, kind of an outward searching, trying to make sense of the world after loss. The third is delving deep into trauma. And then the fourth is healing. And of course, all of those overlap somewhat, right? Um, so I just tried to think about which poems would fit each section and why. And so, for example, in the law section, there are breakup poems, but there's also poetry that comes from an experience in childhood. Um, so those things sort of come together. And then, you know, as I go on, that early childhood loss also comes up in the trauma section a little bit. Um, it comes up in the healing section a little bit as well. So it's, it's just different aspects of the same experience, but seen through these different lenses. The other piece of it was, um, I really think of this as um, a collection of my 40s. I'm 51 now. And I wrote or rewrote these poems in this very tumultuous decade. It was the most tumultuous decade, I hope, of my life. I hope, I hope there isn't going to be another tumultuous decade like this one. <laughs> Um, so it was also kind of looking at what was going on in all of these years in this decade um, and how did I want to make sense of that as well. I really appreciate um, your perspective as um, a woman going through these transitions. As a 53-year-old, uh, it really resonated with me. And, oh, great. and so when it comes to transitions, how, I don't know, what, what was your approach to that? Um, I, I know you're all about stories. So how, I, I just feel like your work as a psychotherapist probably informs just hearing the way that this is set up, informs this poetry and the way you look at it. Um, what, what do you have to speak to when it comes to transitions and, and how maybe this poetry helped you through it or? you know, I think writing in general and poetry has always been there in my life. It's always been um, a way to make sense of my experience and the world in general. And I think it can have a really therapeutic value in that. And then, of course, when you're trying to create something 
craft something into something more artful, then you have to kind of go beyond yourself and your own experience. But I do, I do really think that this book is informed by um, my own personal experiences, but also my way of seeing things through the lens of a psychotherapist. I've been a psychotherapist for close to 30 years now. And so I, I find it very hard to separate these parts of myself. So, you'll, you know, as you see with the different sections, it starts with therapy homework. And that's a bit, of, that's a bit tongue in cheek, you know, because therapists love to give homework that clients never want to do, including me as a client, <laughs> including me as a therapist. Um, so it's, it's a bit tongue in cheek, but it's also therapy homework in terms of how do we make sense of the complicated stuff we're going through. Yes, yes. I noticed those um, chapter headings and definitely the humor involved in, in the, the therapy homework was, but then when you get to the haiku, which I didn't even realize they were haiku at the bottom, those are very interesting. Can you tell us more about, about those? Yeah, you know, I love um, writing haiku and I think I would like to do more writing with constraints because it's just a really fun way to engage with craft. Um, so I've been writing haiku for a long time. I think I learned how to write haiku in high school, which is fantastic, right? I think one of, one of the things that makes poetry so accessible is that we do learn some of these forms um, in school. So um, yeah, so I, I wanted to try to find a way to encapsulate each section to help the reader understand what was coming. So for example, the first one um, is therapy homework, describe your world ending in as few words as possible, which is also tongue in cheek because the constraint of a few, as few words as possible is kind of silly. Um, so I ended up writing, one day we left home, forgot to lock the front door, terrible mistake. So, um, you know, haiku are mood poems. <laughs> so, you know, forgetting to lock the front door is a kind of, um, it's a thing that we all do, um, but it can also be disastrous. We could get robbed. In this case, forgetting to lock the front door was more about forgetting to maybe pay attention uh, to something really important that was happening. So yeah, so I, that's, that's what I was going for, was very short ways to encapsulate what I, each section was about. And I find it, that's part of what I love about talking to poets is when I work with my high school students on poetry, most of the time we approach it without paying attention to authorial intent, um, just because you don't always have access to that. And it gives, it empowers the students to say, you can create meaning from this without knowing necessarily. That being said, so interesting to hear what is behind some of these poems. Um, and you talked about, okay, so you talked about structure and how structure kind of, it, it has a weird way of imposing because it imposes these constrictions on your writing, it, it can give you more freedom in a weird, weirdly ironic way. And I want to talk mm -hmm. about the poem, How to Get Wi-Fi at, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, but uh, Jamia Melia in 14 Easy Steps on page yes. 27. Um, just the, the tone in that poem and trying to figure out how you were creating it. 
and the structure of a list poem. Um, I would love to hear, I would love to hear you read it. And then I'd love to hear you speak to it a little bit more. Okay, I'll read it. I'll start with reading it. Um, how to get Wi-Fi at Jamia Milia in 14 easy steps. And maybe I'll just uh, mention that Jamia Milia is a university in Delhi. Great. And I was doing uh, a, a one week writer in residence um, uh, at Jamia Milia. So this was a little bit about my experience of being there. One, go to the first office where a man with a handlebar mustache will direct you to a second with a green tie and the correct application form. Two, affix a current passport photo. Write your father's name on line four. Remember your temporary cell number. Three, cross muddy campus field, adore water lilies in garden pond, smile at young women reading Prem Chand in weak Delhi sunshine. Four, Drink chai with the department head whose thick hair reminds you of a Bollywood star, his name, tip of tongue, eluding you. Five, carry his signature to the second office, supplicate to green tie, who will shake his head, point to the next desk over. Six, hold your tongue when a man with a shiny pate says a three line paragraph not previously requested is now required. Seven, speed dial the department head, seek administrative rescue. Eight, prepare yourself when Baldev remains resolute and even department head Shah Rukh Khan, yes, that's it, is not exempt to procedure and must phone department head number two to plead your case. Nine, department head number two will greet you with a slight bow, pressed palms, tranced out smile, and will sing song the necessity of this and that policy. Sigh into his calm face, nod, gather your things. 10. When you stand, he'll insist that you mustn't traverse this sodden campus. Rather, like the queen, he'll press a red button, summon a thinner, older, browner man. 11. He will jog on your behalf, deliver wilting page to department head Shah Rukh Khan, while department head Deepak Chopra pontificates on immigration trends that made you a stranger to his country. 12. When jogger uncle returns with the completed document, don't high five him. Instead, smile red faced while Deepak ushers you out of his office back to where you started two hours, one cup of chai, five desks, many men ago. 13. Although no less indifferent, mustache guy will tap permission into his keyboard. 14. Exhale and try not to grumble like a foreigner. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh my goodness. So, you know, the, the kernel of this was that I was doing a one week um, writer in residence stint at this lovely university in Delhi. And I needed to try to find out how to get Wi Fi. And what I've written is very much based on the process that I went through, but there's more going on. Um, there's a number of things that I'm observing in the process. So um, 
what was really important for me to, was to talk about misogyny, right? You know, and misogyny is mm. universal. It's not just at Jummy Amelia University. Mm. <laughs> um, and just the way that women are uh, seen and how women will see the men back. Um, and there are helpful men in the process and very unhelpful men in the process, but even the helpful men are fairly patronizing. And there's also, you know, class-based things going on all through this. There's also some feeling of um, nostalgia, you know, a kind of sentimentality. Um, it was such a wonderful experience. My, you know, my parents are from India. My ancestry is from India. So to be asked to do this um, writer in residence was really a fabulous thing. So, you know, one of the projects that we were doing that week was reading Prem Chand. And uh, so there's some of that sentimentality in there. And then there's also the understanding that I will never belong in India as a diasporic kid. I don't belong there. And I do very much feel like a foreigner and I have to find ways to not behave like one in terms of um, using too much entitlement and um, not making assumptions completely about what I'm seeing um, through my Western lens. So that's where that last sentence, number 14, exhale and try not to grumble like a foreigner comes in. But of course, the whole poem is grumbling like a foreigner. <laughs> But I did enjoy the constraint of a list poem. Um, there's a way that you end up having to be really uh, crisper and more precise in your language when you have those kinds of constraints. Yeah, and it, and it works to kind of build the, the feeling of frustration and, and, and how long this took in the multi-step process. Um, how did you go about choosing and then creating the tone you know the multiple tones that you have in there i mean there's one of humor but it it goes i don't know it's it's just so many layers and i'd love to hear a little bit more about the choices that went into that mm -hmm. i think you know the choices come mostly in some of the final edits i think i just kind of uh free write and then i have to fix and fix and fix uh later a lot of my poems start off very ugly, I would say, and then they get better. So I, I wanted to ensure that I was talking very seriously about the issue of sexism. So there needed to be seriousness, but there also had to be some playfulness in there. There had to be a little self-deprecation in there. So I you know, try to work with that. I, as a novelist, I've worked very hard with pacing, you know, having the very difficult subjects followed by the lighter, funnier things, um, because I think it, it helps a reader to be able to move through something, especially the most serious issues, when there is this kind of playful roller coaster. Plus, you know, life is like that, right? Like, life is this this was funny and this was frustrating <laughs> and and it does it shows kind of your your attitude and way of dealing with it because we all you know we all encounter these these different kinds of frustrations and just the your attitude towards them and, and laughing at yourself a little bit and laughing at the situation uh, it just works it works it oh, hits so you. so well um 
oh my goodness, I'm trying to decide that now I'm not sure exactly where this fits thematically, but the sky and sky in my veins was a poem that also had some resonance for me on page 99. And I'm wondering what was behind that and what you can, maybe you can read it to us and tell us a little bit about, about that. Okay. Sky in my veins. In last night's dream, tropical fish swam just beneath my skin surface, my forearm a spy hole into an aquarium. They flexed and floated, tetras, guppies, a single catfish, sea plants swayed in the current, a view into an interior universe. One winked at me, an angelfish, veil tail waving sultry, she taught me to part my lips, learn to breathe underwater. I awoke unafraid, for if there is an ocean in my limbs, there must be sky in my veins. So this was um, a poem that didn't make a lot of sense to me when I first wrote it, it just seemed to come. But I knew that it had something to do with spirituality um, it's in the last section of the collection, which is the, the healing section. Um, because one of my experiences in the last decade has been to embrace all of the quirky, odd, um, inexplicable kinds of things that I sort of categorize as spiritual experience. So um, I dream very vividly. I feel like sometimes I dream things that come true later on. Um, I sometimes feel like I talk to ancestors and ghosts. And so sky in my veins means that there's some spirituality coursing through me. And this is a way to turn towards that and not deny it and embrace it, I think. I think that's what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I love that. Um, and the a particular line in the poem where it says, let's see, I'm trying to find about, about there being um, a fish that taught you to part your lips, learn to breathe underwater. Um, that, that line seemed to be I don't know. And, and, and I have the same experience. I read it and it felt really significant, but I wasn't sure why. Do you, do you have anything mm. to say about that line? I think that's about uh, like taking the leap of faith, you know, to part your lips and breathe underwater when you're not a creature that, or you think you're not a creature that can do that um, means to, to take a chance. Also parting my lips, um, there's a couple of resonances there. One is about finding voice. Mm. So often our voice gets um, trampled on when we are growing up uh, for various reasons. So to part your lips means to reclaim voice. But part your lips can also have a little bit of a, a sexual undertone. Um, and with the angelfish um, with her veil tail waving sultry, it's also reclaiming the sexual parts of ourselves that can be also trampled when we're young, really um, subsumed. Um, and so, you know, and, and creativity and sexuality are kind of one and the same, or they can be. Um, so it's also about that. So 
it's interesting, just in terms of a craft piece, I didn't have that stanza originally. I was trying to make sense of what I had written. What, what was this poem really about? And I knew maybe I needed just a little bit more. And one of my poetry editors said like, you need to like, you need, you need, you need to give us more. This doesn't make any sense to me. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. So that was, that was the stanza that came to me as a way of making sense of the whole poem. It's weird how it works sometimes. It really is. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about which poets are your influences when it comes to poetry. I'm part of a group online uh, called Teach Living Poets. And it's all about realizing that the canon poets are great. You know, there's some wonderful poetry out there, um, but there's, all, there's also po poets writing right now that a lot of people don't even know about. And it's, it's gorgeous. So who living or canon do you look to? Yeah, to you know, one of, my, one of my really favorite poets is Gregory Schofield. So he is um, a Métis poet. And he writes often on the themes of his own family and the murdered and missing indigenous women. And he writes it in a way that is full of like beauty and depth and spirituality and it's, it's narrative and lyrical. Um, so he's one of my favorites, um, but let me think of a few others. Let me, let me tell you about some that I've maybe read this year. I don't feel like I, besides him, I don't feel like I ever can figure out favorites, but I can tell you what I've read and enjoyed recently. Um, so let's see. I read um, Mary Oliver's Dog Songs this year, and I have a dog, and I have a very senior dog. She's 14, and... Um, I've that there was a lot of solace that I got from, you know, just because this is a stage in my dog's life when things are much harder. So that was really beautiful to read. Um, the uh, poet who um, gave me the blurb on the cover of the book is someone I worked with in a mentorship. She was my mentor, Sonnet LeBay. Mm -hmm. So um, Sonnet LeBay is somebody uh, who I admire quite a lot. Um, and then let's see, um, I'm just looking at some of my books on my shelf here. Shanice John Muhammad, uh, she wrote a book called Reminders on the Path, and it's a very spiritual text as well. Um, Amber Dawn is a poet who wrote a book called My Art is Killing Me and Other Poems, and I related to so much of what it's like to. Um, the difficulties of being an artist in this world mm -hmm. and also what it's like to process trauma through the page. Um, so those are a few that who come to mind. Oh, beautiful. And they're all living and I think they're all Canadian. Yeah. Ah, wonderful. I was, I was writing down furiously as you mentioned it because many of those are unfamiliar to me. Um, I, I wanna, before we end, I would love to talk about one more poem and it's one of my favorite forms after poems. Um, I use mentor texts with my students all the time to have them learn, the, yeah, have them learn how to analyze poetry, but also to write their own. And so Rumi's, after Rumi's, who makes these changes on 31. And I, I really enjoy Rumi and I hadn't read 
this one of his. Uh, so, because I immediately looked that up. And then your poem, please, if you would read that for us and then speak to it a bit, that would be lovely. Mm -hmm. Okay. After Rumi's, who makes these changes? Who makes these changes? I speak a thousand words, the wrong one echoes. I run after affection and find myself chased by a ghost. I invite everybody, no one RSVPs. I cook lavish meals for dozens and eat alone. I should be suspicious of what I want. So this, I can't even remember where I found Rumi's poem, but it really struck me as a kind of regret poem. And uh, it's in the second section of the poetry collection where I think a lot of the poems about grappling are in there. And to me, this is a poem or my, my after poem is really about how we sometimes strive, we sometimes hustle, we, we try a little too hard to, um, to get to an outcome. And it may be the wrong time, it might be the wrong effort, it might be the wrong energy, but you know, we try to control what is sometimes uncontrollable. So this was a time in my life when I was feeling very lonely and I was working very hard uh, to not be lonely. And of course, what I really needed was to just be alone. <laughs> yeah, so. So yeah, I, I like after poems as well, because, you know, again, it's a constraint, right? And mm -hmm. you have to try to sort out, like, how are you going to really um, honor the original poem while bringing your own, your own ideas and words to it? Definitely, definitely. What a wonderful form. Well, I'd love to hear, um, before we say goodbye, I want to hear what, what comes next? Um, what, what are you working on, if you're willing to share? Yeah, I've, um, you know, it's been kind of a fertile time these last couple of years, even though it's been hard to sit down and write, even to read and to, um, to stick with it. I have been able, at least in short bursts, to get some work done. So I have a YA novel that is with my agent that is still kind of waiting to find a home. So hopefully that will be the next oh, one. Mm -hmm. But I've also written... Um, a kind of a self-help book for caregiver types so professional caregivers as well as informal caregivers and activists and there's a draft out and with my agent and she's going to hopefully give me some feedback soon Ooh. and um I think I'm working on some kind of a memoir right now but it's so <laughs> it's, it's so early I'm not sure if I'm going to publish it like I don't know what form it's going to take in the end Oh, I cannot wait. I'm, I'm a particular YA fan, so I'm really looking forward to that. Can you, can you tell us just a tiny bit about kind of what the topic mm. is or what it's about? Or Yeah, so it's about um, uh, these girls who are at um, a boarding school, and um, it's a little posse of BIPOC girls who form a friendship, and they end up um, solving a crime that happens at their school to one of the bully girls, one of the girls that's, who's bullying them, but they solve a crime and understand her victimization. And, you know, despite the efforts of all the adults and, you know, the teachers, they end up 
um, being the ones to solve everything and make things better, which is one of the things I love about YA, right? It's the teens. Yes. It's not the adults, it's the teens who are making sense of it and, and um, yeah, creating the good outcomes. So that's what that, and that's called uh, The Beauty of Us. Ooh. And I have, um, I have a poem that's titled that too. And um, there are a couple themes that sort of overlap between the, that poem and the YA novel. Well, now we have to hear that poem if you have it available, if you're willing to read it. <laughs> see if I can find it. Uh, okay. Page 83. Awesome. And then I'll tell you what it's about uh, as well. The beauty of us. You're a chocolate face. Sunburnt Melissa Miller's grade one insult. So what? You're a vanilla face. My mother's coached words did not help. Small town Whitby, Tuesday afternoon brownies, daily Lord's prayers, Friday evening Gujarati classes. Packy, go home. Fourth grader Michael Bolton, armpit stink blur, shook salt over my scalp, white crystals sharp, wounding. I scratched all day. My mother dissolved. Violence under shower spray, no more tear shampoo. Telephoned Ed Broadbent, booked an appointment to end the cruelty of school children. And we are not even from Pakistan. I refused to go. She went without me. Years after the cancer took over, years after I tried to forget her, Years after I shunned the pre-meds who looked like me, years after I streaked my hair blonde, I remembered her fury, stepped into its petticoat, wrapped six yards of livid silk around childbearing hips, draped palu across heavy breasts. Before the mirror, I admire her brown face, adorn our hair with fragrant white lilies, see the beauty of us. So that is based in some, you know, real experiences with my mother as I was growing up and in school and how, uh, where, where the crossover happens for the YA is um, just the scene of stepping into a petticoat um, that is similar, but also different to this poem. It's, it's about a kind of coming of age. Oh, thank mm -hmm. you so much. That was beautiful. And I really appreciate you talking with me today. Um, oh, thank you. Oh, it's been so informing. Um, this is Jory Crawder, and I've been speaking with Farzana Doctor, who has a poetry collection coming out in May 2022 titled You Still Look the Same. Um, great talking to you, and I can't wait to see some of your new work. Thank you so much. And can I add one little thing? Um, yes, the book is going to be available worldwide in ebook and audiobook format. Um, in paper, it, it's available UK, US, and Canada. But I wanted people to know uh, about the audiobook because some people mm -hmm. are a little tentative about poetry. And um, I, I think that maybe an audiobook might be a way for people like that to enter into the world of poetry. Definitely, definitely. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Farzana. Thank you.